The world we live in, as all of you know, at times seems absolutely chaotic. It seems like it's an unbridled chaos. We have hideous immorality springing up in every sector of society. Drag queen shows scheduled at military installations. Attempted gender changes with drugs and body mutilation. Corporations embracing society's perverted beliefs and practices. Churches changing doctrines and doctrinal stances and adopting some godless fanaticisms. Government, laws, schools, all mired in the implementation of God-hating principles. Now, one of the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And that's exactly what's happening. As Franklin Graham expressed it not too long ago, just recently, he said it seems like all the demons of hell have been released. But I think there's something much more, much deeper, I should say, much more sinister, something that's more perverse, something that is much more pervasive, ominous, something that really stinks, (laughs) something that's venomous, something that's ruinous. And that is the fountainhead of all evil that is expressing itself in this day and age as it has in, in every day and age since the beginning of an Adam and Eve's fall, but is expressing itself in the depth of decadence like we have never seen in our own nation. You know, with the rise of the Nazi party in Germany in 1930s and 40s, there seemed to be this same unrestrained, unbridled gushing from this fountainhead of evil. And with it, the most wicked, evil people imaginable. And one such man was by the name of Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was an SS officer, and he was tapped to be the one of the architects for the Holocaust. At the end of the war, he was captured in 1945, and somehow he escaped. And the German military hierarchy, along with the civilian hierarchy, had all along had this massive escape plan, mainly to Argentina. And he escaped the Allied detention and ended up in Argentina. 
And it wasn't until 1960 when the Israeli intelligence security Mossad captured him in Argentina. They took him back to Israel. They tried him in court, found him guilty. And in 1962, he was hanged. He was executed. In the courtroom during a trial in Israel, there was a Jewish man by the name of Yaniel Denur. Now, Denur had survived Auschwitz. He had survived all the torture, all the brutality in Auschwitz. And he sat in this courtroom witnessing this trial of Eichmann. And when Denur walked in the room, he just stared at Eichmann. Eichmann's the one who presided over the slaughter of people all around him in Auschwitz to include family and friends. And people were looking at Denur. And when he looked at Eichmann and their eyes met, his eyes are seeing this mass murderer in the courtroom now. Denur suddenly collapsed to the floor and he was sobbing violently in the courtroom. And people are wondering, is this because of his hatred here, because of all the evil that Eichmann has done? What is it? And it was sometime later that Denur was interviewed by 60 Minutes. And 60 Minutes asked him why he fell to the ground sobbing so uncontrollably in that courtroom. They said, was it because of your hatred? Was it because of the evil that he perpetrated on you and all your friends? He said, no, that's not the reason. He said what struck him is that Eichmann did not look like an evil monster sitting there. He looked like an ordinary person. He looked like, he said, just like anyone else. Then Denur said, I realized that evil is endemic to the human condition. That any one of us could commit the same atrocities. And then he said this. He concluded with this. He said, there's an Eichmann in all of us. That's a pretty strong statement. That's a pretty strong statement for a group of people sitting here in church that there's an Eichmann in all of us. Well, what does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible, what does Jesus have to say regarding, one, the explosion of this culture that we're in, but what does the Bible have to say about the human condition? Would the Bible agree with Denur that the human condition is in such a state that there's an Eichmann in all of us? Is the human condition in any way related to the violent public expansion of evil 
that we see now in our own culture. I want you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Let's read these first five verses. Luke 13, 1. Jesus had been speaking to people, and then it says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he goes on and gives them an illustration. He says in verse 4, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, we don't know who these reporters were that came to him. We have no idea, but they came in a very condemning way. They were condemning the people who had been killed by Pilate or the tower that had fallen as worse sinners than themselves. You know, maybe they were part of this group that Jesus had been talking about, talking to. He spoke about his second coming. Uh, He had told them that there are signs of the times that you're not getting. And he even called them hypocrites. (laughs) But whoever they were, they wanted to tell Jesus about these Galileans who were worshiping God They were sacrificing as they should have been, and Pilate came on them violently. He struck them. He killed them. There was blood everywhere flying, and that blood mingled with the very blood of their sacrifices, which desecrated their worship and killed many of them. By the way, this this very thing, this did happen, This very thing happened in magnitude later on when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. They killed thousands of Jewish people. Blood mingled with sacrifices. It's interesting also that the Galileans were not under the jurisdiction of Pilate. They were under the jurisdiction of Herod. So what Pilate was doing with the Galileans, we don't know. But he went in there and he massacred these Galileans who were worshiping God. Whatever reason, Pilate did this. What we do know is these people came very condemningly condemningly, and brought this report. The Galileans must. Because they were punished in this way, they must have been extremely evil people. Now, the reporters 
are diametrically opposed in their belief to what Denour believes on the human condition. Look at verse 2. Jesus answered them and said, Do you think? In response, Jesus makes a surprise comment to these reporters. And he tells them something that is directly contrary to what they believe. Directly contrary to their own theology. Directly contrary to Galilean directly contrary to Jewish, directly contrary even to pagan worshipers. They believed that tragedies and afflictions and difficulties and catastrophes, they believed that was directly related to someone's sin. Remember when Job's accusers came, they, they said this to Job. Do you remember now whoever perished because they were innocent? Or where were the upright ever destroyed? They were condemning Job. They believed Job had sinned in such a way that all that happened to him was directly related to that. Even the pagans believed that. Remember when Paul was shipwrecked on the island of Malta? And a snake bit him. And the islanders sat around. They were waiting for him to die because they thought, okay, this guy must be a murderer. That's why this poisonous snake got a hold of him. And they were waiting for him to die. And he didn't die. He lived because they believed the very same thing. A murderer connected to snake bite. Murder equals snake bite revenge. In John 9, 2, Jesus saw a blind man, and he asked his disciples, and disciples asked him, they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? And Jesus said, it wasn't this man who sinned, and it wasn't his parents who sinned, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. So the reporters are thinking to come to Jesus how evil these Galileans are that such a tragedy would happen to them. And Jesus begins to straighten out their theology, and he begins to rebuke them at the same time, and he says these words, Do you think? He's zeroing in right on the very heart of the issue. And so the question is, one question for us today Are there worse sinners and less worse sinners? I don't know if that's a good sentence, but it's good enough. Are there worse sinners and less worse sinners? Are drug addicts worse sinners than soccer moms? Is Eichmann a worse sinner than I am? I didn't do the things Eichmann did. I have had no intentions of doing anything like that. 
Not even close. He must be a worse sinner. Jesus' answer is pretty shocking. He said that the Galileans, struck down by Pilate, were not more sinners, look what he says, than all other Galileans. So all the Galileans are in the same boat. They're all sinners, whether they get struck down by Pilate, whether they get executed, or whether they just die of natural causes. They're all alike. But unless you reporters repent, you who brought this condemningly to me, unless you repent, you'll be just like him. Condemned. So, I don't get it. Why would I perish and go to hell with an Eichmann, a Stalin, a Hitler, a Saddam Hussein, a Chi, or you can go on and on and on. How can it be that everybody is on this equal footing before the judgment of God? You know, that's, that's not fair. That's just not fair. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 4, gives them the illustration of the second tragedy, this tower falling on these people. So they must have been more sinful than the ones who survived that. All the people standing around and the tower didn't touch them. they're, They're not as evil as the ones who just died in this tragedy. Jesus answered Jesus said, Jesus said to them, um, are they, he says, do you think they are worse offenders than all who lived in Jerusalem? Oh, okay. He says, no. All the people in Jerusalem, all the Galileans, they're all on the same footing before God. They are all sinners before God. And he says to the reporters again, Unless you repent, you'll be in the same boat. You know, when Jesus first began to preach in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So what is included in the gospel that we are to believe When we repent, when we turn around from our sins. Let's talk about the fullness of the gospel. You know, the gospel begins with this. For all have sinned, Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? We act like sin. We all act in sin in some way in our lifetime. How does God see that? What does he, how does he judge us by? What is the standard here? Does he judge us by the law? 
Well, James says he does. James says, forever, for whoever keeps the law but fails in one point becomes accountable for the whole law. You break one commandment, you're guilty for all of them before God. And every one of us, every one of us, everybody who's ever lived has broken at least one commandment. No one, Paul says, is righteous in Romans 3.10. No one, no one, he says, is righteous. Now, that's pretty clear. So we all stand before God. We all stand before God as, who, as people who have broken the Ten Commandments. But, you know, I think the Bible teaches us there is something much deeper than that. Something that Jesus is getting here to here. Something that's deeper than what we do. How we act. I believe when he tells these reporters, unless they repent, they will be just like all the Galileans or all those in Jerusalem. He is getting to the very heart and the very reason as to why we have all sinned. I think one of the great issues in our own culture, and I, I know this to be true at least from conversation with others, that people believe that all is well with their soul. Sure, is their attitude. I've done some things I should not have, but I'm not like a Hitler. I'm not like a Stalin. I'm not like the pervert down the street. I'm sure that God measures on a curve. (laughs) You know, that child molester, that guy deserves hell a whole lot more than I do. So all is well. I can just go on living my life. God is love. He treats people differently based upon how evil they are, how good they are in whatever they do. And I think that's pervasive across our culture. That understanding, that very understanding is going to keep many out of the kingdom of God. Why? Because God grades on a curve. No, he doesn't grade on a curve. Or I'm not too bad. I'm not that bad. And I believe that understanding that people have about their own nature and who they are, that that they are basically good because they do not do as bad of things as Eichmann, or they do not do as bad of things as their neighbor. Therefore, God is going to bring them into his kingdom, but the evil neighbor... Going to hell. Well, what does the gospel really start? The gospel starts in Romans 5.10, where it says, Paul says, that we are all enemies of God. We are enemies, Paul says. 
And he says in Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay? What about babies? Are babies sinners? Well, you've had a baby, you can attest to the fact that the answer is yes <laughs> at times. Doesn't take long for us to realize that. Paul goes on to say in, in Romans, he says, For the judgment following one trespass, that's Adam's, brought condemnation upon whom, he says? On the, I ask, upon whom? And Paul says, upon all men. For as by one man's disobedience, and this is the key, Go to Romans, if you would, chapter 5. Okay, Romans chapter 5. Uh, let me just I'll find this exact verse here. Paul says, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners in verse uh, 19. 519. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Stop right there. That's not the whole sentence. But I want you to, I want us to understand this word made. It's a critical word in the Greek language. But Paul is telling us that we have been rendered, or we have been constituted, or we have been declared, or we have been appointed sinners because of Adam's sin. And that's the heart of the message. I believe Jesus is telling these reporters who came to him this report that we are sinners because of our Adamic DNA. I sin because I'm a sinner by nature. I am guilty before God because I am a part of the human race, the race of Adam, and I have his DNA, so to speak. I have his sin nature. I have been declared an enemy, a sinner before God. Remember this song we sang, one of the songs, one of the verses says, there is no other God like you. Well, we'll get to that part. David clearly understood this. He said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And that's not because his mother was a prostitute. That's not because his mother committed adultery. He understood the depth of his sin. Are children born sinners? The answer is yes. Let's talk about point five, if you're taking any notes. We're going to talk about this theological term called total depravity. 
you know, somehow we think that sin just resides on the edge of our character. Somehow we believe that it never penetrates to the core of who we really are. We think people are basically good because that's constantly, constantly what our culture tells us. Over and over and over and over, we hear this. But if we lift our gaze to the ultimate standard, the holiness of God, the character of God, what appears to be good on the earth is corrupt. What does total depravity mean? It means this. It means that no part of us is left untouched by sin. Our minds, our wills, our emotions, our bodies, they're all affected by evil from the very beginning of our lives. There was a man in the 1600s, Edward Reynolds, he wrote this. It is as natural to the heart to lust as it is for the eye to see. What are we inundated today with? Instead of love for God, we're inundated with love yourself. And what's the result of that? The result of that is what springs from our sinful natures. The inner core, the who I really am, declares an all-out war against God. Paul says in Romans 8, 7, that the mind is hostile to God. Sin is rooted in the very core of our being. It permeates our hearts. It's a total defilement of all our faculties. It is an inclination to do evil. No one is righteous to the core of their being. This is why Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.1 that we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And he says the result of that, he says, the result of that is by nature, by our nature, or because of our nature, he says, we are under the very wrath of God. This Greek word nature means an awful lot. We are made, Paul says. We are appointed, we are constituted sinners. Our nature is sinful. And this Greek word nature means not inherited, or this Greek word made means not inherited, not not acquired, but inherent to who we are. No one is a sinner more than another. Now, people express that differently. Nobody here is an Eichmann in the sense of the violence 
of which is attributed to the Nazis. No one here maybe even have a thought of such a thing, of perpetrating such an evil. But the Bible is clear that no one is righteous either. Our very core, our very nature, we stand sinful before a holy God. We are all guilty. We are mired in the sinful nature, and we are unable to correct it. We cannot do anything about it. Isaiah expressed it when he met God in Isaiah 6, 5, and he came before the holiness of God. He says, woe is me, I am lost, for I am of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He said, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He saw the standard and he saw himself. And he cursed himself. That's what the woe means. He said, I'm cursed because I've come into the presence of God. So all is lost. We are all lost, every one of us, and we're going to a devil's hell. I want you to go to Ephesians now, chapter 2. You know, I don't think we're going to understand or accept um, the greatness and the grandeur of the cross until we understand or believe where we stand in our nature before God. If I believe that I am inherently good, Okay, I do some bad things, but I'm inherently good. So what about the cross? The cross has much more depth than that. And if I believe I'm inherently good, that's a devil's lie, and that has fatal eternity written all over. Jesus gave the reporters, he gave all his listeners his great call of salvation. He was calling them to salvation here. He was saying, you're sinners, repent. I'm offering you repentance. If you don't, you're all going to perish. You're going to all end up in an eternal hell because you're under, by your nature, the wrath of God. So what's the good news here? Here's the good news. Let's go to Ephesians 2. Start with verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By our nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here's one of the most important words in the whole Bible, the next word, but. 
If you don't have the word but in your translation, you you should rip it out. (laughs) It's there. It's in the Greek. But, but, I mean, some of you might have therefore, which is kind of the same. But, but, God, being rich in mercy, why? Because he loved us with a great love in which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. There's there's no God like our God. Because there's no God that we stand under his wrath and at the same time we stand under his love and his mercy. In his love and his mercy, he sent his own son. And what happens? Jesus on the cross did not just take our actions. He didn't take just my sinful doings. He took my sinful nature with him. Because if he would have taken just my actions, my nature would still condemn me before God. Because I'm a part of Adam's race. But God saw fit that Jesus would not only take my sins, he would take my sinful nature and all of that would be counted against him. My nature, my sins, my evil core, my heart, all counted Against the Savior. And now he's under the wrath of God. And the wrath of God condemns him and crushes him on the cross. On my behalf. And yours. What a substitute. What a substitute. You know, the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament never took care of the nature of the Jewish sinners. It only dealt with their actions before God. Jesus takes us to the very core of who we are. And then you know what God does? He sends us the Holy Spirit because our nature is still, though we're not under the dominion and the ownership of our nature any longer, our nature still wars, Paul says, against God. We're not guilty. Our nature has been crucified on the cross, but there's a war with our own nature against our spirit, against the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit begins to sanctify our hearts and make us new creations. And he does that for the rest of our life. So our very core, our very nature, our very being of who we are becomes different over the years as the Holy Spirit works in our lives. That is good news. God doesn't leave us hanging then he comes and invades our lives he crushed his son 
He raises up, Paul says right here, he raises up now with his son because he raised him from the dead. He sends his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into the world, convicting the world of righteousness, meaning what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit shows me of my (laughs) self-righteousness. And my self-righteousness is wars against the righteousness of God. So, Jesus dies. He takes my sinful nature. He takes my sinful actions, my deeds against the commandments of God. He takes all the guilt of that away. God was going to, God will execute his justice. He will execute it on the cross or he will execute it on unbelievers, one or the other. He will get his justice because of our disregard for his holiness. And what do I get? What do you get if you come to Christ, if you know Christ? You get counted to you the righteousness that you don't have, but Jesus has, and it's counted to you in God's courtroom. And God says to you and me, not guilty. I can't, I mean, I, I, I can't believe he does that. Declares me not guilty. God, do you know me? Yeah, boy, I know you. <laughs> you don't deserve any of it. I also know my son. And he doesn't deserve my wrath. But we made an exchange. Your unrighteousness for his righteousness counted to you. Jesus offered the reporters the opportunity. He said, you're sinners, just like all the rest of them. But he gave them a granting of repentance. I'm granting you the opportunity to repent, to understand who you are at the core. And God will change all of that. So let's think about some of the application as we close. We all deserve to perish. That's what Jesus is telling us. And God is going to deal with us according to our nature. And if that's the case, without Christ, there is no hope. Without the the guy standing in front of these reporters, there is absolutely no hope. The second thing is, therefore, all must repent. The judgments of God on others 
are loud expressions to us. The tower falling on the people at Siloam, that could be you guys. That could be you reporters. Be prepared. The third thing is repentance, which I think includes an understanding of our, our how lost our state is before God. It brings us to the only one who is righteous enough to be our substitute before God. And that's Jesus. Dying for our actions, dying for our sinful nature. That's why he's called the second Adam. He didn't sin like Adam. But he brings to us a healing and a cleansing, and a forgiveness of our nature from Adam. He takes on the cross our guilt. God crushes him, and we are counted righteous, not guilty. I have a part of a poem I want to read from John Bunyan. John Bunyan was a Puritan. He was in prison for 12 years, uh, and uh, he was in prison because he was preaching, and he was given many opportunities to stop, to, to get out of jail, out of prison. All he had to do was stop preaching. He didn't do that. He wouldn't do that. He wrote like 50 books. He wrote 30 or 40 of them while he was in prison, those 12 years. Um, the Puritans were writers like crazy. I could take one word and write a book. And he, he wrote poetry too. So here's, here's part of one of his poems. He says, fools mock at sin, will not believe. It carries such a dagger in its sleeve. How can it be, say they, that such a thing so full of sweetness air should wear a sting? They know not that it is the very spell of sin to make them laugh themselves to hell. Look to thyself, then deal with sin no more, lest he who saves against thee shuts the door. Let's pray.